0: It a couple of times just for fun, so yeah, it is. Uh, it's still, uh, we'll get into it. <laughs> we will get into it, we're getting into it right now. All right, this uh, is welcome, happening.
1: Ev- welcome everybody. Uh, this is episode two of The Complete Stanley Kubrick. Uh, I'm back with my co host Travis Trudell. I blanked out your, uh, your middle name there this time. That. Is that what you're looking for yeah it's totally fine matthew i appreciate <laughs> it <laughs> well say hello to everybody say hey, hello everyone. to the nice people at home All hey right. everyone how's it going
0: <laughs> i'm glad to be
1: back I mean, we're gonna we're gonna get complete indeed yeah well we might speaking of which we might as well just dive into this one since we've already um talked about what we think of of this guy uh, stanley kubrick um well i'll 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 start just by uh you know kind of what he was doing in between which was mostly trying to figure out how to make a second movie uh he made um fear and desire and uh it kind of didn't make any kind of a splash whatsoever <laughs> no um and uh he actually that same year that it came out 1953 um went uh, to make a promotional video for uh a seafarer's union um and uh it's called the seafarers and uh it, it uh, was certainly not a kubrick movie uh by any stretch of the imagination but he did uh helmet and uh there, i think there's some kind of i haven't seen it in a really long time because i do not own the um fear and desire uh, set that includes it but i i found it kind of illuminating to a certain degree i don't know if you've seen it um yeah, I
0: watched it uh after watching the Fear and Desire disc cuz it's on there as the special feature and right. uh, it's interesting. You can see some things poking out but uh yeah,
1: clearly a commissioned work, yeah. not something that he uh kind of had his um uh passion about. Um and uh spent the rest of uh 1953 and 1954 writing this script uh and trying to raise money to make uh his second movie that uh i think he and everyone uh who's uh watching at home hoped would be better than the first (laughs) um and uh so he made uh this movie it had a few names before it ended up as killer's kiss but um it was basically shot uh on location in new york which i think would be abundantly clear to everybody watching it um he shot it without permits so he a lot of times he was hiding in cars uh there uh, there's one really great crane shot we'll get into uh on the street where i think he's just in a pickup truck uh driving down uh, a boulevard in um in manhattan um and uh he uh still had some sort of production issues uh that carried over from fear and desire the sound didn't work so he did post dubbing again um, and, uh, actually had to recast the, uh, the lead, uh, female, uh, who was Irene Kane. Uh, she wasn't able, she wasn't available for the post-dubbing, so they, uh, brought in somebody else. And actually, Irene Kane, I, I found out, uh, went on to become a writer for the New York Times and wrote a number of, um, Hollywood biographies, including Rosalind Russell's, uh, biography, which I thought was interesting. Yeah. Chris, um, Chris Chase,
0: her name, yeah, her real name yeah. was, and uh, and yeah, Peggy uh, Peggy La- Lobin, I think her name was, was the radio actress they got to dub in her voice.
1: Yeah, and I was gonna hold off on this, but um, so the the uh, the boxer is played by a guy named Jamie Smith, who didn't do very much else uh, after this movie. He was just in a bunch of TV. Um, although I I did read that he was um, uh, briefly a member of uh, Orson Welles's troupe. Um, Mm. in like the late forties or early fifties. Um, but, uh, I, I haven't seen anything like this, but I feel like I'm, I, maybe I should just say this is a hunch, but it sure feels like Stanley Kubrick or sounds like Stanley Kubrick, his voice. (laughs) Um, Ah. I mean, I, 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 I'm pretty sure the, the, uh, voiceover of reading the letter Um, as he's sort of, you know, reading from his cousin or whoever it is in Seattle, his uncle Joe on the horse farm. Yeah. Yeah. That sounds like Stanley Kubrick too, with like a bad accent. Yeah. But, but, um, I don't know. I mean, I've heard some, a lot of interviews of Stanley Kubrick and I don't know, it sounds like Stanley Kubrick. I could not find Jamie Smith's voice on YouTube or anything to confirm, but, um, I don't know. I'm sure I'm crazy and. It's totally inaccurate, but it sure does sound like him. <laughs> it, anyway, wouldn't, it wouldn't so,
0: surprise me. He seems to be one of those guys that would
1: double uh, for his own right, voice. And to, would uh, never talk about it again no. to inform anybody that that actually happened. Um, yeah, and uh, we, we also have uh, somebody carrying over from Fear and Desire here. Uh, the, uh, the villain is played by um, Frank uh, Silvera, who, who, uh, who was in Fear and Desire. So that's the kind of one connection here to that. Oh, actually it's not the one connection cuz um uh Sankler H- Harold, is it Harold Sankler? Wrote yeah, the uh, the writer who wrote the script as well. Yeah. Um and uh we'll we'll get more into the writing of the script I think later, but um for now that's that's pretty much it. Um the, this was bought by uh United Artists which uh mandated that he uh, changed the ending and uh then uh helped finance his next movie um the killing uh yeah. and uh he had sort of his career was uh up and away at that point this this was made um i think for forty thousand dollars uh and it was financed by a uh a Bronx pharmacist who I think Kubrick was related to although i've seen conflicting information yeah, on I that think, I think it the... was his uncle he... yeah Um, and, uh, so again, it's kind of interesting. I mean that, you know, I think most kind of major directors as we moved into the second and third generation of directors, uh, were connected in some way or another, uh, to the industry before, uh, starting, but, um, you know, it's, it's funny to think that somebody like Kubrick, you know coming from a family that perhaps didn't have that kind of money or wasn't as connected, wouldn't have been able to uh, have the opportunity to make even his first film, but especially to have this a second chance to make uh, kind of what he would consider to be his debut movie, um, starting off uh, with, with enough finances to get it done.
0: Yeah, I would like to think that if Fear and Desire was uh, a little more put together and a little more, you know... Uh... Critically successful, that uh, he would have been. Get, he would have he had an easy time raising money for a second project, but you can tell, you know, having to take that seafarer's uh, commission work in between, having to raise money for an uncle, uh, it's almost like he's starting back again as square one for the second movie. Um, you know, right. he wasn't. He wasn't. Or the door was not open to him to make another film. That's for sure.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And I think. Uh, well, I mean. I'll just say, for me, uh, I think it's pretty obvious watching this movie why this was the movie that opened doors for him uh, with kind of professional uh, film studios uh, and not um, Fear and Desire. Uh, But I'm curious kind of what you thought of the movie just overall, uh, just initial impressions before we get into kind of the beat by beat of it.
0: Um. I remember when I when I first watched this movie a while back, it was before I was really steeped in like film noir kind of like uh history and, and, and checking off all the, you know, film noirs I should have watched and really getting into it. And so I found this movie to be, you know, compelling and enjoyable. Like, you know, it was a simple story but it was told really well. Uh shot gorgeously, and then watching it again this time now having seen so much uh, noir and so much tough guy movies from the uh, 40s and 50s Um, you can see lots of the uh, influences on this film which you know I'm sure when you're making a noir movie in the 50s uh, you know at this point you're almost almost getting to a uh, an idea of that you know that these types of movies exist and so you're drawing from them that it, uh, it was still as enjoyable. I, I I liked it. I I have my problems with it as, you know, there's some very, uh, it's, it's a little too simple, a little too basic and some of the threads don't tie together very well, but, uh, it was, uh, it was fun. Like, you know, there's some really cool stuff. There's some great little, uh, juicy lines of dialogue in there that, uh, stand out and then they, uh, the finale in The Mannequin Factory is, you know, worth worth the time put into it, which, I mean, it's 68 minutes long. It's not like you're uh, committing a lot of time to the film, that's for sure.
1: Right. Yeah, I I think there's a lot of value in this movie. Um, I, I agree that, you know, there's definitely some clunky parts to it, and it's not, uh, by any stretch, uh, a perfectly made film. Uh, It certainly does not bring anything new to the table in terms of its genre. Um, And I think in that regard, it's interesting in Kubrick's catalog because he is not really thought of as somebody... He's almost thought of as outside of the um, conventional film history, Um, you know, uh, if you're talking about directors, there's A, and then A influenced B, and then B influenced C, and then C influenced D. You know, whether it's uh, Hitchcock into De Palma or, uh, you know, what it, I mean, whatever it is, um, Kubrick kind of exists outside of that history. He's just kind of Stanley Kubrick, and each movie he made defined that genre or influenced all of these people afterwards um, who could never really reach those heights um so i like watching a movie like this and uh, the killing has that to a certain degree as well um that is so obviously inside of that history responding to that history and influenced by so many movies that came before it um you know jeffrey o'brien in the uh in the supplement um on the criterion disc that this is this is a bonus supplement uh bonus feature on the killing criterion disc and he runs down four or five movies that were obvious influences uh, on this film um and i was reminded of a lot of other sort of 50s noir slash romance movies uh even just criterion like indiscretions of an american wife um you know this was this was a super conventional film uh for its time and uh that also reminded me that the film uh is very much an independent feature and has the lifeblood of New york city uh pulsing through it in a way that very few movies did uh in the early fifties and mid fifties and yet I think when people think about movies of this era that kind of revolutionized independent cinema or put Manhattan proper or New York proper on the map um and really showed what it was actually like in that city you know they think of of movies uh like Shadows the Cassavetti's film um and uh I I find that interesting because there obviously there was tons of independent cinema before uh Cassavetes and yet he sort of thought of as quote unquote the modern or the the uh the founder the father of uh american independent cinema and here's this movie made by you know one of the most famous uh directors of all time that pretty much was exactly the same in terms of what he was doing kind of technically and sort of in ambition of depicting the city and of depicting kind of the 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 real city as he saw it, I guess to a certain degree <laughs> um, and yet it's kind of ignored in that narrative thread of of American film history, and I think the reason for that is because it's so obviously trying to be these other movies that were Hollywood movies and that were kind of straightforward be crime thrillers. And so it, what goes unnoticed in this movie uh, are those other things that kind of make it historically interesting. And instead it becomes just Kubrick trying to make a noir film and not kind of succeeding but not really succeeding uh and uh you know then uh, this allowing him to make a noir film that actually did succeed
0: yeah i think uh you know when we come to think of kubrick we think of him as a studio director um someone who's in the stage and we re- you know notoriously famous for never leaving england after he got there um Moving New York to England to make his movies, and uh, he, and to see him in such a down and dirty, in the you know street level on the streets of New York, uh, stealing shots in the subway and on the streets and up on the roofs, and you see like uh, you see the potential of what a uncontrolled, unmeticulous Stanley Kubrick could be, because it feels raw and has a lot of energy to it that. Is uh, reined in later in his later films as he becomes more clockwork and clean and precise. Yeah. Um, This is a different feel to the film completely. Whereas his last film, Fear and Desire, you felt the limitations of the budget and how, and the choice of location for the film was because of the budget. You know, we didn't like, we're in the same patch of woods and one house, which you know probably doubled for three other locations in that film but this movie um you know he takes that he takes that budget not as a limitation but as a chance to break out and really kind of explore and try new things and i'm sure a lot of it came from his time working for look magazine just being an on-the-street photographer going to the boxing matches doing stuff like that and uh it really opens up um The world of this story just you know hitting the streets uh times square being in the old penn station up on the roof with uh i'm not a new york person i have to assume that's the george washington bridge or is it the brooklyn bridge on the roof that you see in the background
1: yeah it looks like the brooklyn bridge i'm not sure yeah um i i i agree i mean i think the I think that aspect of it makes this movie worth revisiting. And I think it's totally, it totally comes from his, uh, photography background. And I think he knew what, you know, I think the one thing he corrected, uh, here from the previous movie that was most important was that he went to what he knew and what he knew was how to shoot New York. And, holy crap, this movie is gorgeous. I mean, there's some, some shots in this movie that are just really, really beautiful, especially considering the fact that he's not working with permits. Some of the outside shots are really beautiful. Um, but then also it's, it, it's a unique look into that time. Um, you know, I just watched a movie, um, uh, now I'm blanking on the name, but I think it might just even be called On Bowery. But it's about uh, um, it's about people sort of living on, in the Bowery um, in the 50s. And uh, I used to live in that area, and it's a, a really great look at a uh, section of Manhattan that is completely different now than it was uh, at that time. And I think this movie gives you a really unique look at what manhattan looked like at that point um and then you know afterwards uh moving into brooklyn um it's just uh you know it's just a really fascinating look at that um and and i mean even just the opening shot in penn station that which you know was torn down uh a decade later um is just really uh really striking and immediately Feels more like a movie than anything that was in fear and desire oh for sure i think yeah he makes he makes
0: good use of his familiarity with his surroundings he knows where he is he knows a lot about new york and he he fully uh fully uses it to the max and i think i think that's partially why this movie got uh picked up by united artists i think uh I mean, I think they picked it up as a B-pick, the bottom half of a double bill. Um, right. And, you know, even in their promotion of the film, uh, most of it was concentrated on seeing, you know, New York as this dark and grittiest, uh, the pulse of the city coming to life. You know, all the, all the promotional materials for the film and in the trailer for the film really focused on New York as As the backdrop, because you know at this point we're still you know in a studio system where everything was made in the back lots and in the stages, and then there was that big New York movement for a little while where they were making New York picks and uh like the like the sweet smell of success and stuff like that where they were down and out and on the streets and uh I think United Artists saw an opportunity to pick this up to include it in that roster to. Uh, you know, take hold of the zeitgeist at the time and that movement at the time, um, and it is it is really you know. Once again, he's writing, directing, and sh- and he's the cinematographer on this film. So his you know his photography work is uh, is just stellar throughout the film. There uh, the the use of light and shadow. The cinematography, the composition, the way the camera moves. Um, it really... Uh, the things that I liked about Fear and Desire, which is when he had full control over the lighting in the in the uh, stage pieces that were inside of houses, um, is in full display in this one. Like, he really has full control over a lot of stuff. And when he's not, he's doing the outside work, and it's at night most of the time. And so, you know... He's in his element, filming uh, city streets at night, where he can control a bit of the lighting. Um, if it was all daytime stuff, I think it would, uh, you know, he would be still nailing his compositions. But um, the lighting is just so important in this film. Um, it is definitely, you know, noir tinge soaked in that genre. Um, but he does some really innovative work. The um, when he the boxing scene. The boxing scene, the camera work in that is fantastic. You can see, uh, you could definitely see uh, Martin Scorsese cribbing some of those shots for Raging Bull. Because he does some really cool stuff in there that usually boxing movies we stay out. And in a little wide we go in close for some stuff. But just when you think it's kind of like standard boxing picture type shots. He then moves it in like over the shoulders of characters or almost, almost on their gloves. Um, you know, the POV work in that boxing match is uh, really, really fantastic. And you can see, uh, if you look at some of the promotional pictures or shots of him uh, directing that movie or pictures from that time, he's got a black eye and a, a Band-Aid on his chin, <laughs> probably from, like, getting punched in the face or punched in the camera during those scenes, you know, and just totally getting knocked out because, yeah, his face is a little messed up for that, and I have to assume... Some of those shots he caught in the ring, you know it looks like they're punching the
1: camera, so yeah, uh, if he was operating, he's definitely in the line of fire there yeah, there's a great um boxing movie uh from the forties called Body and Soul. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you've seen it um it was it. Uh, it was written by uh Polonsky, one of the um blacklisted writers, but it um It was uh, the cinematography was uh, James Wong Howe, who's, you know, kind of one of the great cinematographers of that era. Um, And uh, Scorsese has um, referenced it as an influence on Raging Bull as well. Um, And I I haven't seen it in a while, but um, it's got a lot of kind of it's much cleaner than this. And I think watching the two of them, you know, there's a lot of kind of like uh, like a tracking shot in as a boxer punches at the camera and things like that. Yeah. Um, and, and, uh, it's a great scene, but I think the contrast between the two, the, the, it really is where raging bull finds its kind of chaotic beauty. And I think watching this movie, you know, it, it's almost like the, the shots between, um, like from outside the ring, as you're looking through the ropes, um, there's they're, they're so documentary style, and the camera is kind of searching for what it wants to find in the ring and it's uh It's very beautiful, but it's also uh just very much on the fly. It doesn't feel planned um, even though there's a pretty good chance that that entire sequence was very carefully planned mm-hmm. um, and I think that is one of the first moments in this movie where you really get a sense for the strengths of Kubrick to come because I, I think the stuff before that you know i think there's some interesting moments before the boxing scene um the setup of the fight kind of the shots of the the way he uses the bills throughout the city to set up the importance of the fight and kind yeah. of establish that it's happening is very elegant, you know, it's not something that you can compare to anything from fear and desire. Um and then like you said, the the interiors are very interesting. I mean the, the his his apartment is very kind of sparsely but interestingly decorated. Like I don't know what all that stuff is on his walls. You know, but... I
0: was I was I was looking at it on this last viewing and it's like uh oh man I I wrote down some of the things that are on his walls. He has like a, a machete, a uh, a you know, yeah. There's a ukulele. Right. His uncle out on the farm. He has a right. ukulele. <laughs> he has one of those kind of like uh, Pacific totem poles, like Pacific Island totem poles. I I want to think that you know this. I want to think World War Two or mm. or something like that. Like this was he he wasn't yeah, sold. Right. Was in the Pacific maybe. Because, you know, a lot of these things kind of point that way. It would kind of make sense. Or maybe they're... But, uh, yeah, I was thinking, you know, it's a it's a huge step forward in terms of, uh, uh, you know, from last movie to this movie, just having some sort of set decoration, and idea of how to build a world for a character so we can understand a little bit about them before, you know, we get to... Before we get into the story. And... Uh, his wife was the uh set designer for this movie. Um Ruth something. She's yes, also the, the uh, yeah, yeah, she's the dancer. She's also the dancer in the dancing flashback within a flashback within a flashback. Right. But <laughs> well, um, there's
1: two separate flashbacks in that uh in that scene cuz there's the yeah, there's the flashback. I mean the whole movie is a flashback. And then yeah. they have the flashback of her telling the story of what happened between her and the, uh, the the club owner and then the flashback of her doing the, um, the dancing scene. And then they, and then they flash forward to the present where he's waiting in the, uh, in Penn station only to flash back to the same scene just a moment later. It's very unusual. I mean, (laughs) it it is.
0: It's a, I mean, this is, I would say, from fear and desire to this movie, his editing skills have improved drastically <laughs> um He is able to do all that flashing around in time and still have it make uh sense. You know where you are, you know what point of the story you're in um you know he doesn't utilize it to the you know in a more modern way. he doesn't utilize it in its best possible sense but he does you you know he does use it in a way that we can understand, and you know jumping to him at the tra- train station again you know just in case you forgot that this is him telling a story, because at that point his his voiceover comes back in again, uh, you know because he kind of dictates you know he kind of dictates like a, a passage of time like we would spent the day together two days together and we're falling in love and he has this little voiceover too, and I think. Uh, moving back to the station real quick gives us that sense of, okay, now I, now I remember he's still doing voiceover and it's all good. Um, it helps with that. Uh, cause otherwise I think it would just be awkward if he just popped his voice back in at that point because we had gone so long without it.
1: Yeah. Although I do feel like that's also one of the, the problems in the movie, uh, the, the sound design is, is not very good through no. most of it. And, uh, it could have he could have really used uh, kind of different recording moments or recording sounds like kind of the echo of the voice because mm. he sounds exactly the same in voiceover as he does when he's in the room talking to her it's very uh, jarring because at one point he's doing narration and then he talks immediately afterwards and it, it's clearly just the same you know recording atmosphere and it just it, it makes it it's very confusing as to what's yeah. happening yeah um, and I mean the overdub in general is is pretty poor um, in terms of you know rhythm and things like that I mean I, some people don't like if if I was Italian I wouldn't care at all because that happens all yeah, the time yeah but uh, but it, it it's not um, it, it doesn't always kind of match their delivery what the, you know the two deliveries of the line don't always kind of sync up uh just right yeah. um but i i do want to point out one thing about the editing because i i agree that the editing is uh much stronger here that first kind of silent sequence uh where they are both getting ready to go out and then they meet in the uh in the foyer of their apartment building mm-hmm. um that's put together really nicely. And I think gives you the sense of space that you need for later when he's doing a lot of looking through the, the wind across the windows um, and really makes their kind of um, separate loneliness and kind of them coming together at the end really, I think underscores the kind of emotional uh, underpinning of the movie very nicely without any lines of dialogue at all um and again like that's a moment that you're seeing here where you're thinking okay well i'm in good hands now like i'm watching somebody that knows how to put together a movie yeah no <laughs> I exactly mean, i don't want to sound like i was like uh you know horrified by fear and desire by any stretch but it, but this is this this is a movie that you watch and you think okay this is a person that knows how to put together a film
0: yeah for sure and you know i i wanna i wanna say you know, yay Kubrick, you did it you you got you you did some learning, but uh you know he was also famously known for taking all the credit for things, so I would like to think that <laughs> there was someone there kind of helping him, an assistant editor of some nature, yeah. and you know because they weren't the lead editor he was that he just didn't include the name, but right because it's a huge jump from the last movie to this movie because he does. He builds a lot of parallel action at the beginning, moving, you know, showing both of their lives and how they're similar yet different. You know, they're both lonely and they're both in their own little worlds. Um, you know, he does a nice little bit of uh, two fish trapped in a fish tank at the beginning of the movie. Yeah. You know, he's looking at the two just kind of floating around, stuck in this little bubble, um, which is, you know, a nice little symbol for their lives. Um and then you have parallel action almost all the way to the big fight. Um, as soon as he gets knocked out, um, they have parallel action the whole time, which is, you know, them going downstairs together, seeing how lonely they are, seeing how long it is to get down into the streets, and uh, then they separate and split off. But even then, you know, he's prepping for the fight. She's prepping for her night as a dance hall girl, Um You know, he's getting rubbed down, she's, you know, in her bra getting changed, putting on her makeup, he's getting his face touched, and then the fight happens. You know, we're watching the boxing match, and at the same time, we're getting parallel action of her um, kind of being uh, forced to watch the boxing match by uh, her boss, um, Vinny, Frank Silvera. Um, the big shot that's uh, until his name was said in the movie i just all my notes say big shot <laughs> um but it's a uh, it's it's well done it's wordless he doesn't use you know he doesn't use a lot of expository dialogue he builds the story visually which didn't happen in his last film at all um and yeah like you said the tasteful shots of like the uh the fight promotion stuff all over the town and um, all that stuff ends up being uh, very useful um, to tell his story without it being, you know, over the top, hitting him the yeah. head with it. And, well, and, and then, I think,
1: again, that's where his he's using the disadvantages that he had in Fear and Desire to his advantage. He, mm-hmm. d- he knew he didn't have good sound on this movie. Um, he yep. originally was going to shoot with sound on set but uh I think I guess he it it seems like he couldn't get the the boom mic out of the way um, yeah
0: that's what he was I was reading in like Michael Hare's book about Kubrick he was saying something like uh he got sick and tired of trying to change his lighting schemes for the for the sound guy so he yeah. just got rid of him and said we'll do it later
1: yeah and and I think you know that that really freed him and I'm sure going in he also just knew Okay, well, I, I don't. I want as as little dialogue here as possible because it's difficult to do dialogue on a cheap budget. <laughs> yeah, um, and I so there there are huge stretches of this movie uh, with no dialogue, and and he can afford that because the the story is incredibly simple. I mean, even the things that make the characters richer are not really related to the core story the dancer flashback has no bearing whatsoever on the rest of the movie um the the farm is really just you know this kind of piece of his uh character that's the a goal for him down the road it's
0: it's the ideal the future the thing that we could
1: be doing so that you know he it really allows him to make a movie that is basically it could easily be wordless there's not much here that that you need to know that's uh told to you through dialogue um even if you know there are kind of moments when the dialogue gets interesting um it's it's certainly not necessary i mean the the whole voiceover in general is not necessary um and you could probably do without the entire framing of the movie. if not for the fact that you know they wanted a happy ending on it um yeah and and really I mean I I, I'm not actually even sure how they did that happy ending I mean if she wasn't available uh for the post dub like is that because it looks like her in the final shot I'm not sure how that how that worked
0: yeah, uh, the fact that she didn't show up with any sort of luggage or anything, I wonder if originally she, you know, leaves hmm. him or something like that. Like she's not interested. She's not going to go to the farm, and he leaves kind of defeated or something. Or so you I think. There's know.
1: more to it as opposed to less to it. Yeah,
0: I hmm. got a feeling that they might have you know yeah. trimmed it back because uh, you know you would think you know a sure symbol of her leaving with him would have been like a bag in hand chasing him down, but she doesn't even have a coat. She has no intention of going yeah. anywhere. <laughs> you know, it wouldn't be surprising if he, like, grabs her to kiss her and then she pulls back and she's just like, yeah, I'm not going with you. You said, you you ran out on me. But at the same time, she's, her character is an interesting character. I have, uh, I think she's, she's my biggest issue in this film is her characterization. I'm starting to, I'm starting to develop a theory. We'll, we'll go a couple more movies in before I... Uh, <laughs> I, You know, to see if my theory is playing out the way I uh, I think it's developing. But, uh, yeah, her character is not too... It's very... You know, as one-dimensional as a lot of the characters are in this film, there's not a lot of depth to these people. No. It's a very noir, pulpy, you know, just out of the thing. She, And instead of making her a femme fatale, I, I don't know if he... I don't know if it was like a, he didn't want to make her a full-out like vamp femme fatale. He wanted to have some innocence, or but the innocence he decides to put, you know, put upon her is this like creepy baby doll innocence. Hmm. There's a couple shots, you know, when he puts her to when he uh, rescues her. Uh, at some point, he gets back from the fight and he looks out of the window and he's woken up after that little nightmare, he's woken up by the sound of her screaming. And he sees, uh, we see Frank Silvera in there uh, choking her out and has her hand over her mouth. So he goes and rescues her and he lays her down in the bed. And then he starts basically investigating her room like a private eye. And uh, we cut to a shot of a baby doll above her bed. And then later when he kind of tucks her in a little bit more before leaving the room, another shot of the baby doll again and later in the film, she's clutching the baby doll, and it's almost, like, it's too, it's too much, like, it's almost, like, turning her into, like, some sort of simpleton in terms of the way she clutches that baby doll, um, so I don't, I don't know if he's trying to go for a purity or an innocence with the doll, like, making her, like, a child that he has to protect and love, um, but, Uh, there's so many shots of her with just like laughter behind her eyes when she's threatening or talking to the men in her life, uh, when she gets angry or when she's, uh, um, I think Frank Silvera when when we go to the flashback of what happened in her apartment and he's like expressing his love for her and she's like, uh, you know, she's very, she's not scared so much as she's like toying with him there's this sense of like, you know, laughter behind, I keep saying laughter behind her eyes because her eyes are like lit up, like this is funny, this is fun for her that she's like mm, screwing with this guy's feelings, but at the same time, she play, uh, you know, she plays this uh, innocence, it's not like she's hurt or she's upset or sad or scared, um, it's like she wants to get a rise out of Frank Silvera's character, but it doesn't play out anywhere else in the film, that scene, that attitude. yeah. And it's her story telling back. So, you know, it's not like from Frank Silvera's POV where, you know, she's laughing at him, that's why he's getting mad. It's from her point of view. So it kind of makes it, it, you know, that whole, her whole motivation, her whole character is very jarring. Um, and also it just goes to show, like, I mean, I'm sure this was done intentionally, but, you know, her backstory, her flashback, she talks about how um, her sister gave up her whole entire life to take care of their dying father, and even when she, like, had sold out everything and married a guy she didn't want to marry, um, this character Gloria, the blonde in the film, um, she, she still hated her sister for that because she was getting all of her father's attention, which should be a really big warning sign <laughs> for someone <laughs> but I it's like it, her character is so up and down and all over the place with her motivations and her tone that um it's hard for me to like when when uh davy jumps out the window later when she's being held captive and he escapes i'm like yeah man keep running don't <laughs> yeah. don't go back for her this whole thing is just wackadoo just go away. Go to the horse farm. Go see your uncle and your aunt with uh, with uh, with her bad uh, hands.
1: Just go get out of here. She's she's nothing but trouble. Well, in the flashback is it's it's very reminiscent of the Music Box, and mm. you know the contrast between the purity of her her um, her sister's dancing, which somewhat. Ironically, she's using in order. She's she ends up sort of marrying this guy that she's not interested in for money, basically because she yeah. wants to take care of, of her father. Um, so she's you know not actually prostituting herself, but is you know selling herself to this guy in order to um, in order to get get support financial support. Um, and yet, you know, she's kind of in this flashback viewing her as this pure, um, expression of her, uh, artistic, uh, drive. Um, and yet she, in her, in her job, which is, um, you know, she is paid to dance with men, um, is, is basically, it's basically a stand in, in the code era for being a prostitute. Oh, yeah. Um, and... Yet it's not at all being yeah. a prostitute. <laughs> so, and it's,
0: and it's almost that that flashback we keep referring to of the dance sequence. It's 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 like less of a flashback, almost as a fantasy. Yeah, this definitely. like ideal fantasy of what her sister was and what it meant to her, and what her sister Iris's—I think it was Iris—her uh, her relationship to dance and how it was everything it was the center of her world and how she gave it all up to take care of her father and in 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 some respects gloria and gloria not understanding that sacrifice which you know as a i think she's 13 at the time of that story you know which makes sense that she doesn't understand that sacrifice she's still a child she hasn't had to make any sacrifices yet and she's holding on to like the wrong part of that story going forward, which is, you know, it's not like she's, like, afterwards, she's like, so that's why I'm never going to sell out because my sister gave up everything. It's never that. It's like she goes, she uses that as kind of like, so that's why I'm kind of, like, at a dance hall selling myself because uh, it's okay. My sister did it. And it's like, the wrong, like she took the wrong story out of that. Uh, <laughs> she took the wrong message out of that story. And I don't, I like, I can't, I can't, uh like, order that logic in my brain yet for her character because, you know, and that's where I have my problem with her because, like, she's so incongruent with a lot of her, like, what she should be versus what she is versus what she's being styled as. And so it's, it's hard for me to kind of figure her out where Davy's, like, you know, Davies, his his whole life is on his sleeve. You know exactly what kind of guy he is. All of his decisions, every decision he makes is motivated by, uh, you know, some sort of I'm no good, so I need to be better. Or I need to get out of the city and go back to a simpler place. Like, the, all of his motivation is like those two things. They all stem from a core of those two things. Um, but for her, it's kind of... I don't know how to read her, so it's hard for me to, you know, with most femme fatales, you can see it's a sexual thing in, in noir movies. You know, this guy has to have her because she is just this embodiment of, like, everything he can't have or everything he's ever wanted but never been able to give. given, so he's willing to kill or commit some sort of crime for this girl. Whereas in this movie, I don't, like... She's painted as such an innocent and child that I don't understand. Like there's no sexual thing to make him want to go crazy about, but there is this heroic thing where he needs to rescue her. But at the same time, she's willing to sell him up river to protect herself at a moment's notice. Um, so it's 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 overly complicated without a strong uh, character core for her that helps us. Uh, navigate, like, her storyline and her arc, which uh, I I think that's my biggest problem in the film. But otherwise, you know, otherwise than that, it should be a simple story, but I think we're missing a couple of key elements to make her uh, painted one way or another, which would help flesh flesh out, like,
1: just her arc. I I don't know. What do you think? Do you think that's, like, does that make sense? No, it does make sense, yeah. I mean, I think, you know... it's never really resolved the fact that she immediately kind of betrays him, uh, in order to save herself, uh, at the end, uh, she just shows up and all is forgiven. Um, and the other thing is we don't really know what happened between her and Vinny. I mean, we can assume basically what happened, but it's not, you know, it's not spelled out for us in any way and it's not paid off later in the movie. So it's, it's, it's a, their relationship is also very kind of vague and not specific. And I think relies in a lot of the same ways that, um, the boxers character relies, um, on previous movies. Uh, you know, they're, they're kind of these stock roles and stock, uh, tropes that are come from other things that, Uh, Kubrick is leaning on a little bit too hard here um and I I, you know I mean I think the other kind of uh, standard female character in films like this is the pure there is there is the room for the pure female but usually what they're doing in the movie is trying to escape some sin or horrible thing in their past and what happened in her past if it's not that horrible. It's also not that interesting. Like that story is Mm. just not a very good story. Um, you know, if you just heard that stories as a standalone thing, you would just think, okay, well that's a thing that he came up with in two minutes. Like it, it, you know, it's, it doesn't really pay off her character or expand on anything in any way. And so I think if, if perhaps something had happened to her in the past that drove her to, doing what she's doing now and getting involved with this guy who's no good um, that was a little bit more juicy uh, or at least kind of illuminating Um, it would be uh, it would be more kind of interesting to see her dynamic pay off
0: yeah I mean because it's there she insults her sister after her sister sacrificed everything for their family and the sister kills herself so like it's there for gloria to have a motivation to want to be something but they it's like it's almost like that backstory fantasy montage moment was made after the film like something else like right. oh we need to we need to bulk this up and give her some motivation and we wrote this little piece because nowhere else in the film like is it even yeah for something that it takes a good 8 minutes of screen time Um, It doesn't pay off anywhere else. There's no resonance. There's no echoing. There's no closure to that story that it makes me feel like it's just kind of maybe shoehorned in for, you know, to show, you know, for either to grow the story longer, to make it feature length as a mandate from the studio to give her some backstory or just to put his wife in the film as a dancer, you know? Right, there's... and have
1: some kind of interesting abstract lighting uh, yeah. for a few minutes. Yeah. Um, a... yeah. Let, let's talk about uh, my favorite section of the film. And a lot of people, I think the first thing people go to for this movie yeah. is the mannequin fight. Mm-hmm. But I actually enjoy the sequence where the manager is killed a lot more. Oh, yeah. Yeah. The, um,
0: the manager in the alley is a fantastic sequence
1: that, I mean, that shot is incredible. Um, but just the, the entire sequence of when, um, they show up at the club, uh, she's trying to get, I think the rest of her pay, um, so that they can run off together. Um, and you know, the manager, uh, there's, there's a mix up about who the boxer is basically from the, from the goons. Mm-hmm. Uh, they kill the wrong person. Um, the, the, pretty much, I love pretty much every set in this scene, in the sequence. Uh, obviously seeing the streets of New York city outside are incredible. The, uh, the kooky hipsters that steal his scarf, the,
0: sh- the drunk Shriners.
1: Yeah. That he, that he chases uh-huh. after, um, that we don't see him catch up to. He just comes back with the scarf. <laughs> <laughs> the um,
0: sequ- I, I in my notes, I wrote like, these Shriners better be like doing something good in this movie because we're spending a lot of time with yeah. them before yeah, for no reason. I, yeah. I
1: almost feel like he caught them in the crowd and he was like, "I'm using. Can you guys be in my movie?" Oh <laughs> for man, a minute. I took like they. I, I was I was flipping between. Uh, they're they're
0: the assassins in a bond movie you know the flamboyant they right. come in the street parade as like the as the CIA the, like, agents yeah so as the as design. the centerpiece of this of the street parade of some sort <laughs> of like Rio de, de Janeiro uh like a favela carnival and they're the ones that are leading the parade and then they're they're always the assassin or uh I felt and maybe it was because I just watched blow up but I was like, these are the mimes from Blow Up. Oh, yeah, totally. Just over overly japing through the city to <laughs> uh point out how square this guy is and then, you know, you know, distracting him and altering like his life a little bit. Which uh you know, you know, but it was it's a it's a it's a really well uh set up, edited, directed and staged piece of uh of cinema where, you know, you have the action going on upstairs where you have some tension of is Frank gonna do something to the girl? And then you have uh, Davy being led astray by the uh, the Mary, uh, Kiwanis um, club members, and then uh, you know the manager showing up to pay to pay Davy his money, and then the misunderstanding. You know the thugs coming down to rough up Davy and end up taking off and roughing up
1: the manager and killing him. Yeah, and that alleyway shot is is beautiful. Mm. Um, I was wondering, you know, what your thoughts are on how he shot that. If he just put a ton of lights around the corner. Oh yeah, uh, to get the big shadows like he yeah, had, because he yeah. had a
0: really big shadow there.
1: He just sort of looked like he just sort of sh- sat it on the ground. Yeah, like know,
0: a and, 5K with no lens. Yeah, it has to be a bare bulb to get a nice strong shadow like that. And so, yeah, that's there's a big light on the ground around the corner, and uh, because of that exposure level, you get those nice deep uh, silhouettes from the from the thugs going into the alley, backing them into that corner. And, yeah, uh, and
1: that that I mean, I think that's the the second great shot in this movie. Mm-hmm. The first great shot in this movie comes right before it, which is the stairway, which yes. I think is uh, the yeah. first kind of iconic or recognizably. Uh, Kubrick shot in Very any film so. that we've seen so far. I mean, I guess the dream sequence uh, that's that's a, neg- a shot negative uh, down the mm-hmm. hall um, is sort of recognizable. But this is a a really perfectly framed composition, yep. and the way he uses it is really interesting. That you can you know see these characters in the background. The way he uses it as the goons sort of. Creep down the stairs, yeah. uh, past him. The, um, the text and the subtext. Yeah, like the watch your watch step. Watch your step. I mean, uh, yeah, you gotta love that. Yeah, um, and then, uh, so yeah, I mean, I think both of those shots are incredible. But what I really love about uh, this uh, sequence is the club. Um, obviously, the the conversation that, that the two of them have in his office is really well uh, lit and beautifully mm-hmm. shot. Um, but the club itself has this sort of lonely, otherworldly vibe. It reminded me a lot of uh, fastbender movies, like mm-hmm. uh, just sort of uh, these kind of rejects or yeah, desperate like, people. Yeah, I was uh, going to say desperate
0: men. Like just yeah, they're just like...
1: drained of all hope and they like are resigned to their fate of being in this club where people just sort of dance with straight faces and, uh, stare off into the distance. Um, it's, it's very striking and, uh, stylized in a way that, um, you you know, there's lots of style in this movie, obviously, Uh but you don't expect that kind of a thing from this movie and it's not Uh necessary to the rest of the film, but I just really love the tone
0: yeah yeah from the uh from the first time we see it when we kind of do the long tracking shot through all the sad dancers, which some of them are happy, some of them are sad. you can see some of the women looking bored, some of the right. men leering from the sides waiting for their turns you know it's almost if this movie was made in nineteen seventy it would have been a it would have been a whorehouse it wouldn't have been a dance a right. dance parlor for sure but uh it's it's a uh, it is a really interesting place it's it's strange and the Um, people
1: are well cast too i mean it's not uh it's not like felini-esque or anything like they're not you know they're not bizarre but they're very interesting faces i almost feel like i'd be more interested in most of their stories than i am in the story that we're watching at the time
0: yeah, you could definitely uh, peel off from there and have tales from the tales from the dance hall.
1: <laughs> Are we starting a uh, killers kiss anthology series? There we go. Yeah.
0: Yeah, tales from the, we'll took one character and spin a fake story about their life. Yeah, I mean, and you can see you can see a direct tie from this dance hall scene to uh, the the milk bar in in later film in a, Clockwork, Clockwork, and yeah. then also the. The grand, uh, rich, uh, Fidelio party in uh, in the final film uh, in Eyes Wide Shut. shut. Um, you can see you can draw that line between those. There is that same kind of vibe of uh, oddity but normalcy and desperate people and weird people like uh, just experiencing a space together like people who don't know each other it's a
1: yeah it, it's a and there's a lack of human connection in all mm-hmm. three of those scenes as well i mean they, they, they're there and they're there to be with each other but it doesn't seem like they're actually interacting with each yeah. other yeah they're there they're because close. there's a transaction happening mm-hmm. that's not yeah, the transaction that they want
0: Yeah, exactly. They want human connection, and they're getting human contact, but there's there's no connection. Right. Um, No, no, that's a... And uh, one of the other things that I like about that sequence is at the end of roughing up the guy, uh, roughing up the manager they start to leave the alley, then they turn back. Like, they're like, oh, shit, we we forgot. We have to make this look like it was a mugging. And they go grab his money, throw his hat a different way, then come running back out. Like, they almost screwed up, like, what they were meant to do. Right. Uh, I found that to be, that's almost like, you know, just his very black humor coming through. Like, you could see that, that, you know, easily it could have been them just walking out of the alley looking cool, but instead, you know, oh, shoot. And then they run back and, like, you know, it's almost like a mistake that, uh, you know, Kub- you, you know, when you see Kubrick's later work and you see that really dark humor coming through, um, I think that's uh, a shot that really expresses that and kind of shows um, what kind of humor he's going to have moving forward. Um, just the blackest of humors.
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, one, one thing before we leave the manager lying dead in an alley, um, the shots of him in the boxing gym, Are lit so oddly. Um, And it makes it look like when he's at the phone, he's standing in front of rear projection while he's talking on the phone. Did you notice that?
0: It's a, it's, yeah, it's in, they're the exact same shot from the first time we're in there to the second. Like all we do is slide the camera in one and he has a different jacket on. Um, It felt like there was a, uh, it felt like there was a scrim. Between or haze some sort of uh, atmosphere between the two, because uh, maybe he had no control over the boxing ring lights and they were just overpowering. Yeah, and so they dropped like some sort of net between the two, or he just added a bit of atmosphere because because uh, he's you know the 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 manager is completely lit lit while everything else looks like it's naturally lit in the background by a single source. Yeah. So, uh, it, it is, it's very, it's very odd. It looks very staged. It almost looks like that's on a stage and not in an actual gym somewhere. Oh, like
1: totally. It. Yeah. Well, at first I was like, oh, that looks like rear projection. But then he like walks into the rear projection in one of the later shots. So yeah. I'm like, oh, that's probably not rear projection. <laughs> yeah. It's probably also, just... I mean, that would have been ridiculous for him to use rear projection. Yeah. Um, for that, for that shot like too. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so uh, that's interesting. Yeah. I was curious kind of what was doing that effect. Um, but, uh, yeah, so so after this sequence, I think there's a pretty silly kind of the cop sequence and him getting in the car with the gun, um, driving yeah. out to this uh, abandoned area, and then the, the movie kind of gets a little bit more life. Um, this section of New York is so awesome, and it's mm. so perfect for both this film and I think... It, more than anything that we've seen so far thematically this is like kubrick in a nutshell just these stark you know abandoned warehouses and um these long stretching streets that alleyways that seem like they go on forever um, oh yeah you know this he's is, got this the, is
0: the halls of the overlook in yeah, the building form
1: yeah he's and you know i mean with with New York off in the distance, sort of just towering above it. Um, it's uh it's it's really striking. Um unfortunately, he then goes into a kind of empty warehouse uh interior and has a really silly, awkwardly choreographed uh fight sequence that oh, yeah. I think like it's just so amateurish i think more than anything else in this movie like the scene of him kind of getting them against the wall and they you know figure out how to distract him it's just the whole thing is very clunky and does not work at all (laughs) in my opinion
0: it's, it's 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 very weird uh yeah they uh it's it's like you can see he's trying to ratchet up tension and give you through visual cues the pieces that will be his downfall. Yeah. But it's so overdone.
1: It really is. <laughs> so yeah.
0: telegraphed that it's like okay, but uh, I do like I will say, I do like that he bites her on the neck to make her scream to draw his attention away instead of like, you know, just grabbing her or making a sound or like biting her on the neck is just such a (laughs) just a weird way to go that it's a i I applaud that bit of weirdness to it
1: yeah well there is that like you said you know in fear and desire with the violence there is like an edge to this movie that i think is not present in in a lot of other movies from that from the era even the way she talks to him after, uh, you know, he get he gained, uh, to, talks to uh, Vinny after he gains the upper hand, and she's trying to kind of, you know, work her way back into his good graces. It's, uh, it's very like kinky and uh, sort of um, sub- subservient in a way that like. You know, obviously, like this was not um, an era for uh, strong, wi- strong female characters, but uh, it it has this kind of undercurrent of uh, of like, you know, it's not necessarily sexual, but it, it has like a strong sexual vibe to it that I I was kind of surprised by how almost explicit it got.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's a it's you know if you were to pick a theme for this it's like a seduction of innocence and trying to kind of escape this uh uh, crime like trying to trying to keep yourself pure and go back out to the horse farm in the country where everything is good and there's no problems out there the city ruins you and like that's what these guys are basically they're you know Holding her hostage and making her be this uh dance hall girl and uh right. and that sexual current that that you know that comes with that I think that's part of that uh biting her on the neck it's so you know that vampire that sexual uh, the sexual uh, way that uh, vampires are viewed, you know, throughout all of film history, and then you have this character doing a very specific thing, biting her on the neck, which is also kind of like, a, you know, moving her forward, draining her of her innocence, making her one of them, and then, you know, you have that, and then it just blows into this insane... Sexual uh, tension where they're just fighting a amongst a bunch of naked mannequins. Right. They're all women mannequins. No, there's not a single male mannequin or kid mannequin in there. It's all naked women mannequins, <laughs> which you know has its own thing. You know, a pimp and a fighter fighting over around all these naked women. Um, it gets really uh, you know that sexual tension or sexual innuendo is brought startling to the front
1: during that scene for sure. No, I'm glad you made that connection because obviously they, I think that's where we're going next. And this mm-hmm. is the big scene from this film. Um, and I think there's two ways to talk about this scene. I think the first is kind of what you're getting at, which is how it pertains to this particular movie. Um, the the two men that have been fighting over a woman for the last hour now using, uh, rep you know, duplicate duplications of women's bodies uh to you know throw yes. at each other oh, yeah, as assault each and other yeah. or... and destroying m- many more of them in the process um and and then of course like the fact that most likely this was the warehouse that was available to him and so there was a, a, a certain chance associated with it it's not like he bought Uh, you know, 500 mannequins to use for this, uh, for this shot. Um, and then I think the other way to kind of look at the scene is in the context of the rest of Kubrick's work. And as a director, he has a reputation as a masculine director, as somebody that's looking at things from a male perspective. Uh, he certainly generated an enormous amount of criticism, uh, for films like The Shining and the way uh, he um, treated the lead actress in, in that film, Shelley Long, um, and uh, Full Metal Jacket, uh, and even Eyes Wide Shut, um, even though obviously this was made before those and doesn't, you know, is it could just be viewed as a uh, sequence in, one movie and just something that he thought would be interesting in the context of the film there are almost disturbing images in this sequence of you know hands hanging from the ceiling heads on the table um just body parts laying around and some of the images of them creeping through these body parts is very disturbing Mm -hmm. um almost becomes you know a slasher movie um and obviously we know that those are just, uh, mannequin parts, but I wondered kind of how you thought about his depiction of those, um, and kind of his use of it here as almost like a, uh, you know, an it, it's entertainment value. And I think also like how this, sequence compares to the sequence uh in Lady from Shanghai the Orson Welles uh, film with the, the mirror with sequence. the mirrors the mirror sequence yeah. at the end and sort of how those two things kind of uh contrast each other the reflection of yourself versus um this uh disembodied depiction of your ultimate desire yeah um it's you know you could
0: what i talked about earlier with the whole like uh, psychosexual thing going on in that room um you know if you were to look at it in context of the film itself you can see that it's two men pl- you know fighting over a woman but you know this woman could be any woman really she's not anything special she you know she's kind of like you know any one of those mannequins in the room she's just something that an ideal that they would like to fight over because they want to possess her, and here they are in a room full of all these all these women that they could easily possess. There's so many other women you don't have to fight over one. Um, there's so many other people that you could connect with. You don't have to fight over just that one. But if you're to go into the you know if you're like you're talking about going into Kubrick's uh, entire kind of filmography and, and looking at his portrayal of women in his film. Uh, my working theory is uh he's not a big fan of women um i don't i, I don't want to say like you know he's very macho um he's uh he if we were to kind of cycle through his films and how they're portrayed if we look at just even fear and desire uh there's a girl who barely speaks english that's held against her will um that um, is ultimately killed because she wouldn't give sex to the character of of the film. And then we have this movie in which there is a, a childlike uh, blonde waif girl who is bouncing from a pimp in a, in a uh, dance hall to a boxer who wants to possess her and take her away to uh, the horse farm. Um, you know, even Full Metal Jacket. You know, man's worst fear is that he was killed by a woman. Um, and you have The Shining and Shelley Duvall and how she was treated, and you have Clockwork Orange with all the raping going on. And um, He doesn't have a very clear track record of having um, any hope that uh, women will uh, go beyond a certain station in life, which is kind of disheartening, especially now. I, I don't think I would probably... Um, I started picking up on it, really going back and thinking about these things with these movies. Um, I can see why he's considered a male director, because he doesn't make movies in which women have very strong centers, stories, characters, or character arcs. Um, They're usually used as foils or things to keep men down or away or objects to be possessed. So, I think this scene is very much um is a fantastic summation of uh his female characters in all of his films. They're just body parts to be looked at, stared at, and used however you however men see fit to accomplish their goals um hopefully I'm not getting we just lost.
1: And half of our viewers <laughs> <laughs> hey, that, that's, it, that's their problem it's, no it, i mean yeah. i think that this is something that you have to reckon with with him yeah uh, it,
0: it really is he doesn't he he's he's very cl- it's very clear how he feels about that um whether it's you know it's never outright said in his movies but visually psychologically uh pictorially it's all there and it's 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 something hard i mean 2001 the space odyssey we're in the future and there's no female scientists they're just a steward like a plane stewardesses space stewardesses and there's
1: like one doctor daughter yeah Yeah.
0: and the daughter and that's it Yes,
1: well that and that's the i i almost think you know in a way um oh by the way uh I said Shelley Long, not Shelley Duvall. uh, (laughs) Kubrick did not direct Cheers. Um, But but that uh, episode he did direct was really weird. (laughs) Um, I almost think 2001 is the worst representation of his relationship with women because that movie is about the evolution of man. And it is about man, not Mm -hmm. humanity. No. Uh, And I think that aspect aspect of it a film that is intended to be take place from the dawn of man to the next evolutionary leap uh before we get into kind of the more details of the film um (laughs) uh cuts out women entirely Mm -hmm. um and you know I, i think there's certainly ways to read uh some of his films as uh, more kind of female-focused or at least uh, kind of interested in the female characters than, uh, than initial readings may suggest. Um, I think the case can be made certainly for both The Shining and Eyes Wide Shut and Lolita to a certain degree, although I think we'll get into that more in detail um that that they are primarily about the perspective of the woman and her kind of uh driving uh the 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 male character arc of the film um in a way that's kind of subversive um but i don't think there's any doubt that all three of those movies are from the man's perspective uh yeah. initially and i don't and are primarily interested in how the man evolves uh rather than how the female evolves even though Nicole Kidman in Eyes Wide Shut has the first word and the last word we follow Tom Cruise's character through the movie we don't know what Nicole Kidman is doing during those sequences uh as Tom Cruise goes off on his adventure outside of the of the domestic realm to, uh, you know, find himself within their marriage, uh, away from his family and children. Um, and, uh, and so I think, yeah, it, watching this sequence, you know, if this sequence had been, if, if, um, a male director like Bergman had made this, had made a noir early in his career and had a a mannequin fight sequence, I think it would read a lot differently than it does, uh, coming from Kubrick, but it came from Kubrick. And so I think that it's very kind of, uh, important, uh, for us in particular, that half of the audience that has already turned this off, uh, (laughs) to pay attention to, um, to what's going on here, even if it's not conscious, you know, even if he's not, talking about the, the violence that, uh, men perpetrate against women, or even if he's not consciously, uh, or, or even if he's not subconsciously, uh, depicting pieces of, of women's bodies, uh, throughout here, even if it really is just, uh, the, that, you know, there's, there's sort of this honest, uh, metaphorical connection that he wants to make between the fact that these two men are fighting over a woman a woman and that's really all there is to it which is likely the case mm-hmm. um the rest of the movies that he made makes this a a very um important uh sequence in his films
0: yeah yeah i mean it could you know i i can definitely make the case for uh you know kubrick being the imp that he was about lots of things you know wanting to fill the screen with naked women, you know. They're mannequins, but he's still, like, kind of getting away with it a little bit. Because there is a definite choice to not have any male mannequins there, you know. Yeah. You easily, you know, probably in the deep background, it's full of men mannequins just to kind of fill up the room. But he definitely made an effort to put all the females in the front. So, I mean, it could be just that, you know. Two men fighting it out over a girl while these, you know, blank staring faces of girls are watching them and it's, you know, adds to the tension and the uh, the horror of the scene because it is shot very much like a horror movie at that point. It is very creepy. Um, the hands pointing at him, the way their faces are blending in, um, you can definitely see that but I think it's, uh, you know, if we're going to be complete it's hard not to look at everything and then look at this as kind of like a, a very... A very easy um, uh, er text for the rest of his his uh, career, for rest of his film career yeah. in regards to to women. So, but uh, yeah, it's a it is something we have to point out because we will we will be addressing it every movie. Um, it's hard not to um, because uh, it does it does prove to be one of the. For every moment of genius he has, there is that glaringly obvious uh, deficiency in him that you know. When we talk about his uh, his love of humanity, um, you know, it's mainly it's it's the story of man, yeah, and it is of men. And so you know, if he if he focused, you know, if he made a woman's a woman's picture from a woman's perspective, and, and you know, chances are he might have done something absolutely fantastic with it but it wasn't something i don't think in the realm of possibility of his thinking he had a very specific viewpoint of things and you know it's repeated over and over again but uh
1: yeah and that's okay i mean it's fine it's it's fine to make movies that are uh, from a male perspective obviously yeah um but yeah i mean i think it looking at the and each individual film i think might read differently than as a complete work and i mm-hmm. i mean i think you know uh we'll quickly get into paths of glory um and i think there's uh, a very real kind of reading of that movie uh in this context as well and yet mm-hmm. um there's barely you know there's one woman in that whole movie so i mean they it it would be easy to watch that movie and, and talk about it for 5 hours and not talk about this but i think within the context of the rest of his career um it, yeah it's impossible to avoid um well we'll we'll obviously be talking about this quite a bit uh, as we go but i think uh, we've we've reached the limit of our of our mannequin battle uh, yes. analysis, um, and and I mean I the, I wanted to get to uh, one other kind of big thing here about yeah. Kubrick's career um, in this movie, which is that this was the last movie that he wrote uh, as an original screenplay. Yes, um, and obviously he you know that that was to a certain degree out of necessity. Um, because it's not like he had money to buy the rights to a book or something. Um, but I do find it interesting, uh, well, first of all, in film in general, that it is acceptable, um, if not preferable to adapt a book or a play into a film. Um, there are, there are some plays based on movies there are no good books based on movies. (laughs) Um, (laughs) And, uh, I think the fact that Kubrick for many people and often in these votes, um, is, uh, you know, named the greatest director of all time, Mm um, is interesting considering the fact that he, uh, for for the bulk of his career and for the films that people think about when they think about his career, uh, never made another original movie. I mean, 2001 kind mm-hmm. of is an original movie because he developed it along with the writer of the book uh, yeah. at the time. So, you know, that, that kind of is an exception to what I'm talking about yeah. here. And obviously, like, the short story that Eyes Wide Shut is based on is only so long and is not set in contemporary New York, et cetera, et mm-hmm. cetera. So, it, you know, there, there's certainly things that he made that are completely different. The The book that Dr. Strangelove is based on is a, is not a comedy. Um, yeah. But still the, what is it about? I mean, is that acceptable? I guess I should say. I mean, the, right now we're sitting at a time when in the, the number one film on the sight and sound list is a is a film that was based on a book vertigo mm-hmm. um what is it about movies that makes that kind of x quote-unquote acceptable to people uh in a way that it's not acceptable uh for books for I example
0: know, I, I think it's uh i think because movies are you know it's because they are the visual the visual medium um I think being a writer is one thing. Being a filmmaker is something separate, because you can tell these last two movies. Kubrick isn't a strong writer. Yeah, he's not at all. He's a he's a very gifted uh, filmmaker. He he knows how to take uh, the text and the subtext and put them visually on the screen for us to decipher or to get in, you know to be enveloped by. But when it comes to writing, like it's hammy. Um, it's pretentious and hammy. Like he does, he you know that first film. It, he's shooting the moon, trying to get like these big ideas across. But I think as he progresses, I mean, when you get to uh, when you get to two thousand and one, a space odyssey. There's no voiceover. There's no uh, you know deep thoughts of the characters. It's all represented visually, and he does that. Sh- more and more strongly as this film career progresses, you know, cutting away from that voiceover stuff, unless it's like, you know, the Clockwork Orange stuff where there's a huge disconnect between the words and the visuals, what Alex is thinking versus what he is doing, and, you know, there's an importance to that. But... uh Oh,
1: yeah, I mean, I think Clockwork Orange is one of the few films that or one of the first films you can point to and say, here's a way to use... First-person narration voiceover that is actually useful to the film yeah. and enriches the movie instead of something that could just be cut out as as people are taught these days in exactly in screenwriting classes. And I think,
0: I think uh, you know, uh, teaching for years, when I give an assignment of just like, all right, guys, take this camera and go give me like ten shots of something, uh, I find that the students are lost they don't know but if I say go give me 10 shots of desire uh, just sparking that little germination of an idea in them gives that lets them spiral into all kinds of very creative and weird and different things and I think Kubrick is the same way I think he originally kind of like had this grand thought of like being a writer director you know I want to tell the stories I want but when he told the two stories he wanted to they were mediocre and they weren't very compelling. They were visually lush and visually interesting to look at. But story-wise, they weren't very good. And he's probably sitting there going, well, there's got to be, you know, I read all these fantastic stories. Why can't I come up with something like that? And I'm sure it was in this next move into making the movie The Killers, you know, with a United Artists buying uh, Killer's Kiss and then giving them, I think it was 100000 and into his next project which I think was a script that they had in development um, he probably saw that oh this is so much easier because I can take something that's already written and put inject my own thoughts into it inject my own ideas I don't have to do all the heavy lifting uh, from the ground floor I can spin off of this and it becomes something that I can be more creatively involved with um, and I, I think it's just I think that's just how it is some you know you're a writer. You're a writer. I mean, look at uh, you know, look at Norman Mailer. You what a fantastic writer, what a horrible filmmaker, right? Right. You know, and it's it's they're they're such separate things. I think everyone entertains the notion that they could easily slide into one of these other artistic fields because they are themselves are artistic, but it's a, the mediums are so different that I think that you know the written word books are very. Very easily transplanted into films because it becomes interesting for you, you know, especially if you've read a book. You know, I always look at it as the book is the book, a movie is a movie. Don't compare the two because you're never going to be happy. And I think the reason for that is it's like you could take a book and you can make 30 movies out of it. And if you have very, 30 very distinct original directors, they're going to focus on completely different things. They're going to tell parts of the story that, uh, you know, another director wouldn't focus on. Right. And I think that's and what And that's makes been done. I
1: mean, yeah. Dracula. The exactly. Dracula movie is exactly the same.
0: Exactly. And I think that's what makes it interesting, is because uh, you're looking at a unique perspective on something that is uh, wholly original, created from another person. And I think that's where filmmaking works its best, is that it's... Uh, it's a collaborative art. As much as there is the auteur theory of things, you know, it is a collaboration. It is people working off of each other. Going back to what you were saying earlier where this director influenced this director influenced that director, um, a lot of it is, you know, this piece of work influenced this director to do this certain thing. And that could be from a painting, a play, a, uh, a book. Um, I think filmmakers um use all of the other mediums as influence for their for their work which makes it more exciting because it is a it is a giant collaboration um i don't know i think that it's a good question well
1: i think kubrick um you know he was a a strong um advocate for filmmakers doing things other than watching movies yes you know he was very interested in in inspiration coming from other places and uh, i think we'll see that as we go deeper into his movies yeah. that you know he was also a person who said that he never read a book for pleasure uh until after he graduated from high school wow. um, so so the 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 person that he became later in life this kind of notorious book fiend who mm-hmm. you know had a huge library and, and read voraciously um was not the person that he originally was. Um, the other question I have just about the fact that he never ended up doing another original film. Um, well, I mean, first of all, there, I guess there's two points I want to make. The first is that you don't have to make a movie uh, that you write for it to be original it can be an original script from somebody else and so it's interesting to me that he continued to kind of develop his own scripts he wrote most of his movies i think maybe all of them he co-wrote um yeah and uh, so it wasn't that he stopped being a writer as much as uh he stopped coming up with his own ideas. He wanted that inspiration that you're talking about, I yeah. guess. Um, and then uh, the other question I wonder about, and this isn't something you can answer, obviously, but I wonder if it was intentional. I wonder if he said after this movie, and I mean, I think the, like you said, I, I think I think he wrote the script, but I think the, um, the idea for making the book, uh, The Killing it wasn't called The Killing um I don't remember the name of it but um I think the idea for making that book came from the producer that he met but um you know I don't know at what point he said okay I'm only going to do this now or you know if if it was just the fact that he was so kind of invested in reading and in finding new things and exploring new ideas, that he um, that he he simply just never got to the point where he decided, oh, I'm going to uh, um, come up with this completely original thing. Um,
0: yeah, I mean that. I mean it could easily have been that it could have been you know just a simple. I enjoyed this process much more, not having to start from scratch. And he just continued with that, you know, so many great things that he started, you know, because if it is, you know, if it is true that he never enjoyed reading until after he was out of high school, I mean, when he graduated high school, he went right over to Look magazine and worked for four years, and then made his first film. Um, so at that point, he's probably still kind of now just starting to read for pleasure, um, you know, and that I think I think actually. It was a play he saw, maybe uh, when he got involved with the the screenwriter for the last two movies that he he made. Uh, George, uh, oh man, what's his name? Uh, Howard Sackler. Oh yeah. Um, you know he he it had it was from something that he's you know he read by that person that got him interested in him and wanting to work with him. It was mm. it was a book that kind of got him into that, and then I think you know. It wouldn't surprise me that it was as simple a decision of that as that. Is, oh, this is so much easier to have something that's already kind of uh, created that I can then, you know, uh, spin off of and, and inject my own thoughts and ideas into it, or you know, embellish the one part that I really do enjoy about this uh, piece of work and kind of like expand expand upon right. that. Yeah, he mean, does.
1: I, I don't know if if Napoleon was. Uh, based on a particular, like if he bought the rights to a particular biography or something mm. like that. I, I mean, I think it was more of uh, just an amalgamation of all of the research that he had done. So I guess, you know, it, that could have been, at least even though it's based on a true story, um, yeah. you know, s- somewhat somewhat of an original screenplay. Um, yeah. So, I, I mean, I, I guess maybe there was always the potential. And I mean, he... he there was never an indication that, uh, you know, he intended for there to be such long breaks between his later films either. Um, so I guess in a way, um, you know, these things just kind of fall out where they do. Mm -hmm. Um, but I, 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 you know, there are a number of books kind of looking at Kubrick as primarily, uh, somebody who, uh, did adaptations and kind of, what that means within his films and also just in the context of film in general. But I, I continue to find it interesting kind of what uh, what mediums it's okay to borrow from, what mediums you, uh, you know, you can make a, a video game out of a movie, but when people make a movie out of video games, it's considered stupid or low class. Yeah. Um, you know, I mean... There, there's, there seems to be a kind of, um, uh, order, pecking order to, uh, artistic mediums and, you know, got like, nobody would ever make a, a, uh, a high art, uh, Super Mario picture, you know, <laughs> like, you know, if, if, uh, Van Gogh was still around or something, he would not, he would not be painting, uh, based on the hit video game, Super Mario but... Brothers 3.
0: But, I mean, uh, you know, Andy Warhol, he took pop culture and yeah. turned it into art. Well, I and I,
1: I think that's a, yeah, that's a good commentary on the pecking order of these things. That, like, there, there's there's uh, just, it's almost like the, how, like, people who speak English have a particular order to uh, the adjectives that they put in front of nouns. And mm. you don't think about it, it's just subconscious. Like, you would never say, like, the blue little house. You would just say the little yeah. blue house. It's yeah. the same, like we, we just have this natural feeling of, um, you know, and I guess maybe it's switched at a certain point with musicals and film. Maybe it was just the Lion King, but all of a sudden now it's okay to make films or mu- films into musicals. But before yes. the idea that you would, you would only go the opposite direction. You would only make a musical into a film. They never yeah. made Casablanca the musical in 1951 or something like that. Um, <laughs> So, although that was but based on a play, I guess that was a bad example.
0: <laughs> and, I think, and I think it's a, but I think it's a, uh, it's an age of the art form, because, mm-hmm. you know, when film came out, uh, all the authors and writers and painters and uh, the play, uh, you know, theater people, they, they, you know, they shit all over movies. Right. They were yeah. not, you know, it's it's the young bastard. Uh, it wasn't considered an art form. It's yeah, still in it's some circles for kids circles. and immigrants,
1: basically. Yeah,
0: it's yeah, it's it's still not considered an art form in some circles. It's still the lesser of them. But then, if you see what they are doing with video games nowadays, in terms of atmosphere and story and uh, structure and like, the, that is becoming an art form, and the right. people who work in that industry would consider themselves working in an art form. And so, of course, there's going to be a moment where finally, though, you know, uh, those two things, there'll be a lesser art form below video games. And then video games will gain a new stature and they'll kick that art form. <laughs> right. <laughs> because, they ha- you know, they have that ability. Like comic books, comic books, weren't, you know, still aren't considered an art, even though they're very, you know, well, they're getting more prominent, but... Uh, you know, for a long time, there was a, a very big disconnect that those were for kids and immigrants, people learning English and little kids to entertain themselves. And uh, that's, you know, it's become more and more of a, uh, a valued art. And I think that's, that's, that's just how it kind of works out in our society. We kick the, the new thing. Anything new, we don't like. Anything that has changed, we fear. Yeah. And I think that's, that's how it is and that's how it works with that thing. Yeah, well,
1: and I think it dovetails nicely with Kubrick's films too, because his movies have always, um, maybe not always, but most of the time, not with not with Barry Lyndon or Eyes Wide Shut, unfortunately, but they've mm. for the most part they've been able to walk the line between high art and mainstream art. Yep. I mean, the the notion of and and they're always so directly tied to their time as well. I mean, the notion that that a movie like Uh, 2001 could come out and be a box office sensation is kind of mystifying today I mean you put that movie out now and nobody would go see it Um, or at least nobody not enough people you know to make it box office hit Um, yeah and maybe that's just the fact that not as many people are doing acid these days but (laughs) I think I think nevertheless it tapped into a a certain um, part of the zeitgeist that did not pay attention to high art films by any stretch Mm -hmm. and um you know i think that's always been kind of why he has maintained such a high profile because he's able to make he was able to make films that spoke to their times uh in broader in a broader to a broader audience than would normally go see um the the films of sort of that caliber the yeah. that, that were truly kind of artistic works um and you know i i think about the beginning of uh, tarkovsky's um sculpting in time book about uh, where he reprints letters that he got from uh just sort of everyday workers uh, factory workers who went to see mir um in the soviet union and saying like uh, I liked Andre Rublev. What is this movie? I have no idea. Why did you make me sit through this? And, um, you know, I, I would be curious to see, like, if Kubrick got similar reactions. I mean, I know he did from Eyes Wide Shut. Um, yeah. You know, I think there he was able to, because he was such a, a luminary figure, he was able to gain the kind of hype that drew people to that movie and plus I mean Tom Cruise and Nicole Kidman obviously as well oh yeah and the sex all the sex all the hot sex in Eyes Wide Mm. Shut (laughs) Uh, the erotic thriller Eyes Wide Shut thriller (laughs) had to be recut too hot for American audiences (laughs) you won't believe it Uh, you'll just want to go home and do it Uh, I I mean I think people uh, went to that movie and and were like what what are people talking about why would anybody want to watch this movie um and i don't i don't think he got that with with some of his earlier movies which is kind of uh, kind of impressive
0: yeah no i agree i think uh i mean as uh as uh david as davy says in his last voiceover at the end of the movie the whole thing is pretty
1: silly <laughs> yeah well, uh, speaking of, of the movie that we were talking about previously, um, I think we both uh, will be putting ranking this above Fear and Desire. I think that's safe to say.
0: I will. Yeah. I think this is much better than Fear and Desire. So, my, also, Oh, sorry. Go ahead. One other fun fact about this movie that we didn't talk about at all is... This is the first interracial kiss on screen. I saw that. Is that true? i I did a bun. I did a research. I went looking around, and it it seems to be the consensus. I'm sure someone will actually, you know. I'm sure there probably were some sort of uh, underground movies or some sort of like lost film um, that portrays it differently. But a lot of people didn't know that. at the time, or didn't care to know that Frank Silvera is uh, a very light skinned black man, but he because he played so many different ethnicities in right. films, yeah. I think a lot of people with a name like Silvera thought he was Italian, yeah, and so didn't blink an eye at it. But he's that was the first uh, black and white kiss, it predates the uh, predates the Star Trek episode, <laughs> which was the first on screen television, uh, right. interracial kiss. Huh. Which Frank Silvera was dating the lady uh from Star Trek, who I can't remember the name of, and all the Star Trek nerds are yelling at me right now wow
1: that's uh that's a fun fact right there yeah that right? a connection huh. that's
0: a good one um, um yeah that, I thought that was very 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 interesting
1: yeah um oh yeah so so my uh question to you and i I don't want spoilers oh. here uh mm-hmm. do you think based on your previous viewings, that there will be a movie yet to come that you will be ranking lower than this movie?
0: Oh, man. There is a possibility. Okay. I, have to, I, haven't, I haven't seen it in a while, so I need to rewatch right. it. Right. Um, but there is a possibility. I can think of one that comes to mind.
1: One comes to mind for me as well, so we will find out uh, in the future if it's the same one. Excellent, excellent. Have All right. Well, uh, this was fun again. Uh, yes, thanks yes. for thanks for doing this with me. And yeah. uh, next time we will have the killing.
0: Oh, nice. That'll be fun. Another another trip into the crime picture world of uh, Stanley Kubrick.
1: Yeah, and this is where kind of his career really begins uh you know he poo-pooed this movie not as much as fear and desire um but was kind of still viewed it as a student film uh you know in the in the parlance of our times um and so i think the killing is really you know and this has a a lavish criterion blu-ray release uh and um you know is is regularly shown um in repertory theaters and stuff like that so this is really his first uh first major major movie so uh we'll see how it goes and we will hopefully be uh having a guest on that but uh i'll save that for uh for for when the time comes nice all right well i'll see you next time we'll see you